Blood Brothers Podcast, a Five Pillars Production. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, my dear brothers, sisters, friends, and the foes out there, and welcome to another episode of the Blood Brothers Podcast with your host, Dili Hussein, and my co host, Aki Hussein. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Before I introduce today's very special guest, I want to remind all the avid podcast listeners that you can find the Blood Brothers podcast on all the major audio platforms. And of course, if you're tuning in via YouTube, ensure that you are clicking subscribe, liking the video, sharing the video and leaving a comment. Today's guest is a dear friend of mine, uh, someone whose story never gets boring and never gets old because there's so many lessons to take from what he has experienced and what he went on to Achieve and do thereafter um, He is a brother whose counsel I take very seriously when it comes to my line of work And especially in the realms of counter-security uh, counter In light of counter-terrorism, CVE And how Muslims are treated post 9-11 um, He is a senior lecturer in criminology In the School of Justice at Liverpool John Moore University And that's none other than the esteemed Dr. Rizwan Sabir Thank you for having me Assalamu alaikum Was that intro okay? It was very thorough. Thank you, bro. Very thorough. Zakhla khair for coming out such short notice. Yeah, you're welcome. Anything for the podcast. And I think um, the book, which will be the crux of today's uh, podcast, uh, deserved and necessitated for the podcast to happen with a matter of urgency. Um, bro, just to set the scene, right? Because I know you featured on season one with our dear friend, uh, Dr. Fahad. And we spoke about racism and institutional racism and, and you know, critical race. Did you remember? Yes. It was at my house. Course, we, had, yeah, yeah. we had a bit of barn. We had a bit of banter. Uh, one Fahad up. And, you know, we didn't actually get to speak about your unique story. Um, and that is, uh, the, what was it? The Nottingham 2? How, what, was, what were you titled? We were, we were dubbed The Nottingham 2. The Nottingham 2. Can you please, for our viewers and listeners, kind of set the scene as to where this all began Why were you named Nottingham 2? What is that? What happened? And yeah, just, just kind of just tell us what one. Okay, it's, it's a good opening question uh, I think we have to go back uh, a number of years Before we talk about the Nottingham 2 Because there's a broader context at play So I think actually like a lot of young Muslim uh, men and women in Britain and throughout Europe and the West, uh, the story starts on 9-11, right? Because I think we all remember where we were on 9-11 at that moment. We, yeah. we found out, right, mm -hmm. that the, the planes had hit the towers. And I was in sixth form then doing my A-levels. I was in year nine. Yeah, well, there you go. Now I'm showing my age. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You're not that old. <laughs> so, I, I, you know, I've all, I, I was always political. <clears throat> growing up in a Muslim uh, Pakistani household with relatively conservative, you know, talking about Palestine, talking about India's atrocities in Gujarat and Kashmir. So politics was was a normal part and parcel of our daily life. But what happened on 9-11 was that this, this figure of the Muslim emerged in a way that I had never seen before in my life. And I, and I think a lot of people will attest to this as well. So it kind of got my curiosity. Why were Muslims in the name of defending Islam, attacking civilian targets uh, as well as military in the US on 9-11. So I became more interested, and then obviously before you could pan into any kind of detail, um, Afghanistan, the war started, Iraq started, and mm -hmm. then I started university. And when I got to university, you know, coming from a Pakistani working-class background, you know, studying politics was never something you did formally. Of it course. was always a vocational, 100%. right? Like yeah. business or management. I did, I did it's not something you pursued in terms of 
um, your Co- plans academically, Correct, yeah. your Co- career. It, it was literally, it was, you know, reading history, reading politics was something you did around Knowledge. the dinner table. Or yeah, yeah, right. It's not going to secure you bread for your mm-hmm. for your life or pay your rent and, sure. and all the rest of Come it. Come on, when I graduated BA in politics, now you're making me feel no. All but right. I, so did I. But you had wisdom. That's yeah. why you chose to do that first, right? <laughs> Don't say that. Don't say that. You're not. I'm sure you've been accused of far worse than no, having no, wisdom. That's true. That's true. Don't say that. But. So, um, so, so yeah. The the <laughs> initially, I went to university and I started a you know. A degree that was vocational it had nothing to do with social sciences and you know like most first year students away from home i i i failed because i was too busy partying okay um and it was only when i failed and i'd never failed anything in life alhamdulillah um alhamdulillah. i had a conversation with a, a good friend uh, and she suggested why don't you do something that you're actually interested in and the only thing that interested me at that time was well, it was the Iraq war because everything was happening around the war, the uh, uh, allegations or the intelligence that was driving the, the war in that situation was, at that moment was being questioned. <clears throat> so there was a, a deep-seated curiosity. So she said, why don't you study sociology? So when I went to have a meeting with the sociology admissions tutor that said there's no space we can study politics, it's like, why would I study politics? Mm-hmm. Politics is all about, you know, the houses of parliament and boring male and pale men. Yeah talking about whatever it is but he told me uh, the admissions he goes look you get to study uh, war and conflict and international development you get to look at terrorism you get to look at um, Cuba as a case study or Northern Ireland and all these other really interesting topics I had no idea you could academically study so when I started the degree long story short um, I became really interested and started really like um, going above and beyond what was expected of me as an undergraduate student. You know, give, give, give us an example. So I'd be attending uh, talks uh, at the university where external speakers would come in. I'd go to seminars. I'd meet with my tutors during their office hours to, to talk about ideas that we were discussing in the seminars or in the lectures. And it was only then that I realised actually you can get a job as an academic and actually get money to talk about these issues that they're not even work this is just like Something interesting to me yeah, yeah. yeah of course like you know they say find a job that you you love and you don't mm. work a day mm. right um so it was that kind of philosophy so i, I spoke to my one of my lecturers steve steve hurst and um he, he explained how the process worked because get, get a get an undergraduate degree you do your masters you do a phd and you'll become a specialist on a subject and then you can go and apply for lectureships so it was a simple plan I found in 2003, uh, four, mm-hmm. you know, get three degrees and become an academic. And my interest was always in war, conflict and terrorism as a young Muslim man, you know, part of that 9-11 youth. Can I just interject there? Like, were you not worried even at that time, thinking that as a, as a Muslim student in further education university that you seem to be quite passionate uh, about war and conflict when those kind of topics very quickly after Afghanistan and Iraq became areas where Muslims kind of stayed away from or didn't want to be known for per se. Did you you have your moments where you felt like, actually, I shouldn't be treading on this path because maybe there's going to be a lot of barriers and obstacles there for me and it's going to probably cause me more problems? Or just hot. It's just hot. Did you not hear that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't think it was hot. And the reason why I didn't think it was hot is because I was very stupid and naive. Did you think the university was a safe space? Did I think university was a safe space? Uh, Yeah. 
Okay. Uh, I did. But you um, would. You would you you would believe that. I did, but I think also the terrain was very different back in 2003. Yeah, okay. I know there were I know there were so-called radical speakers and ideologues mm. being invited onto campus and they'd been coming on since the late 80s, right? Mm. So I I kind of knew that discourse and that practice existed. Okay. But never did I feel afraid. I I I just felt like a passionate student who mm. was trying to understand the world in Fair order enough. to make the world a better place. Cool. And and there was no problem. Um because my intention was to try and help find a solution to some of the problems that we were experiencing in the world. So that's where the journey started. So politics and this is an important point. Politics wasn't just a subject area. It was an area of my personal interest. So I was researching, talking, engaging in ways that even my colleagues on my degree were not, right? So I was trying to go above and beyond. And then if you keep that context in the back of your head, you get to the University of Nottingham in 2007 8 you realize then why i'm now working 12 13 hours in the graduate center or the library mm-hmm. and engaging with primary documents accessing <clears throat> journals speaking with others attending events because i've become a lot more engaged politically and mm. and 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 personally invested in this because it's a a career path that i need to build towards uh or build in support of so that's where 2008 then emerges and I download a document what was that part document? of my uh, postgraduate research it's known as the al qaeda training manual okay um it's uh you can buy a copy wh smiths blackwells um all high street bookshops so it's not illegal to possess um at the time at the time it was not illegal it was lawfully it was unlawful to possess because it had been used to prosecute okay a person uh, you probably know the name the lyrical terrorist of course or samina malik yes. um so so malik was um actually convicted uh, based on that document as was another individual halid khaliq but both of these cases um were really interesting because long story short i don't want to get into the legal minutiae of it but Samina Malik had i think 20 documents in her possession which is what she was uh, charged and prosecuted for mm-hmm. but then when the case went to appeal the defense argued that actually a lot of these documents constitute simply ideological propaganda mm-hmm. this is not tactical information that is useful to terrorists which of is course. what the defense relates to mm-hmm. so as a result and one of those documents of course was the al qaeda training manual and that case law came into existence one month after my release but you said that w h smith and you named other sh- shops that what sold it yes that's right yeah you can still purchase it from w h smiths i downloaded it because i'm i was a poor student okay. from the united <laughs> states department of justice oh, website wow. which is where it was at the time when i looked at the document <clears throat> it said government exhibit 1677-t which immediately made me understand that this document had been declassified okay and and placed into the public domain but precisely for students and journalists and researchers and librarians or whoever was for interested ac- access for those reasons precisely right did you inform anyone that you would be downloading this no absolutely not did did you, uh, did you feel you didn't have to because it was a declassified right. public access right i was just going to say i hope you're going to ask me why i didn't tell anybody yes. right um so yeah but i'm I, the context is i'm downloading hundreds of documents now as part of my um, literature review yep. and an application i'm putting in for a, a phd scholarship mm-hmm. and this document is downloaded in the context of hundreds and hundreds of other primary reports and documents and journals and so on and so forth 
So there's nothing untoward about this document. I had no idea at the time it was you could buy it from the bookshop or you could get it from the library on loan. But it was on an American government website. I mean, why would the American government be placing documents that were useful to terrorists on their website and then arresting people? Downloadable. Right, right, and then arresting them. I mean, we know we know there's a whole discourse around entrapment. Of course. But I'm not getting into that. point is, at that moment in, in life, as a 21-year-old man... It seems safe to access. Right, because it's on a government website. In hindsight... Yes. Would you have informed any authorities or your teachers or your or your seniors if you could take yourself back to that moment did a, did a thought pass your mind where this is a hot document no, no, no it, it wasn't hot though that's the thing in my no, no, mind no, at that no, time it no, wasn't no, hot well just by the just by the, the very principle of Al-Qaeda's name being on I'll, it I'm asking I'm asking is now knowing what happened which is about to tell us what happened if you could rewind time do you think telling authorities or your teachers would have helped um n- no for the simple reason that none of those individual teachers or lecturers were approached prior to our arrest. Got you, got you. So we would have been arrested regardless of what they knew. And even, uh, you know, even when the police came to the university to speak with um, the academics, they still didn't actually tell them what document I'd been arrested for. Wow. So... I know the story has gone all over the place. No, 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 it's good. No, I'm liking it. It, it, it kind of starts to in 2001. It gets to 2008. This is what drives uh, the arrest. And, you know, the arrest, it's, it's well known, involved 26 police officers, codenamed Operation Minerva, um, where myself and my co-accused Hisham Yeza are arrested. He's an Algerian Muslim man. Uh, of course, just, just, just on Hisham, Hisham, our dear brother, is uh, the founder and, and editor of the Ceasefire magazine, right. uh, an outlet which I have uh, proudly contributed towards. Um was he lifted just by association or was there something... The document was actually found on his computer okay. after I sent it. And the reason why I sent it to him was he was helping me draft my PhD scholarship application ah, okay, and the got proposal. You. Mm. Okay, got you. So, and, and plus, because he's the editor of Ceasefire magazine, he mm. has a I- inherent curiosity and interest he does. in all these matters. Of so we would routinely and constantly meet for coffee and conversations in his office, in the cafe. Top brother. And just, just talk about politics and history, basically. Mm-hmm. So during the process of, of that kind of student-mentor uh, relationship, he's a lot older than me as well, uh, and he's very, very sharp, uh, intellectually very gifted. Um, so I was in the habit of sending him drafts of my written work for his uh, feedback and also any articles or journals or reports or documents that I thought would be of interest to him as the editor of Ceasefire. And again, you know, the Al-Qaeda training manual was sent to him on uh, MSN uh, Messenger when I were going back. Um, But it was sent in the context of hundreds and hundreds of other documents, Mm. right? So the document was actually found on his desktop by his line manager when he was off sick. And when she saw uh, the Al-Qaeda training manual and two journal articles, one called Killing in the Name of Islam uh, by uh, two academics at uh, the University of Tennessee in the US and another one called Bush's Revolution from Foreign Affairs, you know, that radical mm. uh, Islamist journal, yeah, right? Yeah, it's yeah. like the most mainstream uh, political science journal you can get in the world, probably. So these three documents were discovered on his computer. They were then escalated to the management at the university who referred it to security. Security then reported it to Nottinghamshire Special Branch. Wow. Special Branch said this is beyond our resource capacity. So they instructed the West Midlands Counterterrorism Unit, whose remit, 
kind of falls to Nottingham. The serum is. <laughs> that, that's one way of yeah, putting it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but these, the, uh, the CTU unit emerges after the 7-7 bombings yeah. because the bombers come from different parts of the country, Aylesbury, uh, Yorkshire. Yeah. So it's very London-centric, the response of the police service. They say, look, we need a more permanent presence distributed around the country. And then one of the uh, outcomes of that is the emergence of these regional hubs. Yep. And West Midlands Counterterrorism Unit is one of them dedicated yep. to deal with the threat of political violence. Mm-hmm. So they then arrive on campus and undertake a joint operation with Nottinghamshire Police involving 26 police officers, arrest and detain Hisham, he becomes detainee one, and, and then arrest me 20 minutes after him at 10.40 in the morning, and I become detainee two. At home. Uh, at the University of Nottingham's campus. Tell tell us where. Wow, what was that like? Tell us what you what were you doing? Where were you? What were your thoughts? Who was around you? Uh, um, the thought at that moment in time was, it's all one big mistake, and we're going to clear this up once I once I get to the station and tell them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I don't want to give any spoilers as no, well. Um, but in the book, I go into excruciating detail to describe. Uh, what exactly happened mm. on that particular morning because it was mm. so significant, how I was actually being surveilled at the time by undercover police officers uh, whilst I kind of went about my normal morning routine, you know, coffee and a smoke and a conversation about the German welfare system mm. with a colleague. Um, very radical, yeah. Mm. Um, so, you know, but the I think the ultimate feeling was of complete, like, th- this is crazy. Like, it's not a problem. This is so crazy that nothing's... A clear misunderstanding. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and I, will, I, will, I will clear everything up until I got into custody and then realised that my home was being raided, my, my property was being seized, my car had been seized, people were being questioned, I was being interrogated. And once I got a lawyer, I realised actually the police were trying to look for evidence that would incriminate me rather than necessarily um, absolve me of any allegations. And then I understood, ah... The, the process at play is extremely troubling. And far more sinister. Yes, yes, yes. And I also started to feel quite powerless as a result of that. Mm. Um, that sense of just being another number in a system, in a matrix of counterterrorism, which is what I refer to as in the book, um, where you can be disappeared for years. And had I not had the support uh, structure the 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 kind of people who have privilege in a middle class predominantly white institution Russell group um, I would just probably have been another Muslim male who finds himself in a prison cell for possessing a document for which there is no criminal intent to use for terrorism Riz I know you don't want to give too many spoilers but it's, they're, they're, I mean I, I do want to get to the themes of the book because there's some very important themes that I know you want to discuss and we definitely want to I want you to elaborate on, mm. but just to kind of like, I mean, you've, you've given a very powerful chronology and setting, you know, 9-11, a curious Muslim, an interest in politics, went to university, went to do sociology, settled for politics, uh, realised there's something that you love, passionate about, yeah. you could see yourself as a career doing it, uh, post-grad thesis, and then boom, that happened. How long were you detained for? So in total, I was held for um, six nights and seven days. Six nights and seven days. Um, and the law was... Law, the, the, 
that they can hold you up and for how long? Twenty eight days. Uh, the law uh, at, at that the time, time, yeah, authorized the the uh, the police to hold you in pre charged detention yeah. for twenty eight days. What's the law now? Fourteen days. So, okay, cool. Still the longest period of time that you can be held in uh, pre charged detention for any crime. Um, normally, the rule is um, I think it's four, four years. Forty hours? No, no, no. Seventy. Uh, I think it's four days and so ninety-six okay. hours. Okay. Um, That's for like major murder, no like major any crime. crime yeah. Except terrorism, you yeah. can only be held for a period of ninety-six hours. Wow. By which case, they either charge you or for a crime you or you're released without charge or on bail. But terrorism can be held. You can be held for fourteen. Remember, in two thousand and eight. Uh, Tony Blair was asking for 90 days He was That's three months he Pre-charge yeah. detention yeah. Yes that dog so, was yeah. So it was a really Really dangerous precedent That would have been set But even now At 14 days It's still quite unprecedented mm-hmm. And the reason is Because uh, The security state uh, mm-hmm. Claim that the threat Is a lot more um, Dangerous Than anything we faced In the past Plus with technology And globalisation um, things like uh, encryption, of course, uh, different languages being used, it becomes a lot harder for them to investigate. But one does wonder how they deal with organized crime on a global level, like this, within ninety six hours, and exactly. why that same, you know, can't be that same to. fairness can't be applied to terror suspects. So six days and seven nights, and then released without charge. Then released without charge. Yeah. Now, the now the post that event would have shaped you and molded you and affected you in various ways in various times and periods up until 2022 what in in terms of surveillance yeah state surveillance of muslims and what you said what was it what you said what matrix was it matrix of terror account terrorism tell us a bit about that would you what do you mean by that okay so <clears throat> um because when I'm released without because a non-Muslim and a non-Muslim and we do have non-Muslim viewers and listeners, they would be like, okay, well, look, man, if your line manager saw an article of that nature or a manual of that nature without us necessarily knowing what it's for, anyone would be prang about it. Yeah, yeah, you, you, you're most certainly going to be. <coughs> prang about it if uh, if if it's uh, a Muslim if, who has that, of course. If it's an IC. Three that's holding or IC four that's holding the Absolutely. document, right? Yes. And has that context. So, 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 so there are so there are people that will not necessarily justify the matrix. So they're like, well, we can't. You guys kind of asked for it, didn't I you? Think, I think it's a really good point. Um, actually, when I was in custody, I discovered this once I was released. One of my um, supervisors, my 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 upcoming PhD supervisor, my master supervisor was actually told by one of the police officers that had this been a blonde Swedish PhD student at the University of Oxford, this would not be happening. Which just, it just goes to show that when you, when you wear a hoodie mm-hmm. late at night on a street in Hackney, for example, uh, um, the police will see you very differently to how a young woman or young white male uh, will be treated if they're wearing a hoodie. 100%. So it, it's all about or context. Or walking a dog. Or wa- well, yeah, right, right. And so if the dog's wearing a hoodie as well. <laughs> it depends how cold it is. Yeah. It depends what kind of dog it is as well. Yeah, yeah. Some some dogs you can even pop into your handbag. Mm, that's right. Yeah. yeah, you're definitely getting stopped by feds for that. Mm. Yeah, because yeah. that looks sinister. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you, as a young Muslim male, would so visibly racialize. Yeah. Why are you carrying a dog in your handbag? A chihuahua or a jack could there be? Your bag. <laughs> Right. Just to stay on, on point, right? Mm. Uh, bringing it back to the whole surveillance thing. Mm. Um, when I'm released without charge, I, I want to make this point and emphasize it. I'm not released because they think I'm innocent. 
right? They release me and Hisham from custody without charge is because they recognize that the case is so weak that if they were to charges and standards before a jury of our peers, the likelihood of securing a prosecution beyond reasonable doubt, a conviction, is very, very, very slim because our reasonable defense is that we're using it for academic purposes, which we were, right? Mm -hmm. um, so they... They, they, they say that, look, on the balance of probabilities, we're not going to secure a conviction. So let's not charge and uh, prosecute. Leave them. Because it's, leg it's legwork for CPS, right? And a lot of legwork as well. A lot of legwork. To prove beyond reasonable doubt that exactly. we're actually terrorists when we're not. 100%. Right? So, so they release us without charge, but then what happens is something sinister happens. Uh, I'm released without charge with a notice which has no legal uh, validation or credibility, but it's basically a warning to say, look, we're releasing you without charge, but if you are found in possession of this library book again, then we're going to arrest you and reinvestigate you. Now, that's a clear coercive threat that is made. That's ridiculous. Which disallows me from doing my job as a researcher and a, a doctoral student. Any right? explanation why? No. No, but what also happens at the same time is that I'm subject to an ongoing process of surveillance, Right. So I'm released without charge, not because I'm innocent, because I won't be able to secure a prosecution in the courts, but also at the same time, they think I'm, I'm up to something. Mm -hmm. I, can't, I can't be fully innocent. So the interest of the security state starts to, and the violence of the security state starts to take on a different form. It becomes a lot more sinister. It becomes about surveillance. It becomes about monitoring me at the border. It becomes about stopping and searching me at the roadside, placing uh, markers or classifying me as a subject of interest or an SOI, as they mm. say. In Just unsettling you and your life in various ways. Yeah, but also not being able to accept the simple fact that, you're that they got this wrong, Yeah, yeah exactly. that, that I'm innocent. Mm. Um, so the, the, the violence doesn't... They don't just think, oh my God, let's just stop. Mm. They continue with it. They escalate it Carry and so on and so <laughs> forth. And, and that takes on this really uh, insidious uh, kind of form which has a, a deeply detrimental effect, uh, impact or effect on my mental health uh, up until this day. Uh, but we can, we can uh, talk about that later. But yeah, the surveillance is something that personally affects, starts to affect me, and that's what the, the power of surveillance you, is. You said violent, you've, you used state violence. Yes. Now, now some Muslims were like, well, they didn't beat you, did yes, they? Yeah. No, 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 they didn't beat They you. didn't beat you with batons. They, did, they, did, they didn't manhandle you. So what, what are you talking about when you say state violence? Okay, so, so when, 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 when I use the word violence, uh, violence at its most vulgar, in its most vulgar form, is a physical beating, a yes. physical act of uh, violence, torture, mm -hmm. physical abuse. But actually, um, when you are um, uh, taken into custody and placed and confined within a cell, that is an act of violence because your freedom has been removed from you, your liberty has been taken. That becomes an act of violence. Okay. Right? But also, when we're dealing with surveillance, now, if you think that you are under surveillance, what do you feel the outcome would be if you step out of line? You're going to get shown what time it is. You're going to get shown what time it is. Yeah. So you will face some kind of consequence because of your action. Of course. Right? So Raided, beats, right. arrest, um, so what oppression. All, what you feel all, there would be a violent consequence. Right, a violent consequence, right? So as a result of that violent consequence, the fear and the feeling that violence may be executed against you becomes a threat. Scary. So surveillance induces, is based on a threat of violence being used against you or a, or a negative outcome or consequence. So surveillance becomes an act of violence. So remember, coercion is not just physical violence, but it's also the threat of violence. Mm -hmm. 
And if surveillance is being undertaken in order to use some kind of direct violent or coercive action against you, it, it implies a threat. So it becomes an act of violence itself, so it becomes coercive, right? Also, uh, there is violence that is embedded within symbols and representations, right? Mm. When we're, as young Muslims, young Muslims, as young Muslims, when we're represented in the media through a discourse of Orientalism or reference to constant terrorism and all the rest of it, this becomes an act of symbolic violence. So violence can't be translated to literally. Um, It has to be looked at slightly more broadly to say, actually, there's different forms of violence. That's why... The UN definition of is, torture Is that an acceptable definition by the way That broader spectrum well, you just Absolutely I, I don't think you can understand violence Without understanding the broader spectrum Because a lot of the time Power doesn't rely on Over acts of violence mm. and, that, and that's what the prevent strategy deals with absolutely. right? But also You know The UN doesn't define torture as A physical act of abuse Of course it does But it also says It's mental Mm-hmm. Psychological torture, mm-hmm. right? So, how can an act that doesn't involve a physical act of abuse against you constitute violence? So, actually, violence is is beyond just a physical act. It's systemic. It's structural. It's symbolic. It's psychological. Which is why gaslighting and abuse in, for example, domestic abuse situations is accepted by the court to be a form of violence. Mm-hmm. So, one of the one of the reasons why I actually wrote the book was to show that. Violence, which is lawful, can be undertaken by the state, and it doesn't have to um, uh, rely upon overt acts of individual abuse against you, physical abuse, but it can still have a profoundly detrimental and damaging effect Mm -hmm. on your state of mind, your uh, ability to reason, your ability to just go about and live your normal life. And harm you. Right, and the, the levels of harm that emerge as a result of that violence. The, the post-release surveillance mm-hmm. that you were subjected to, uh, the SOI, the markers, the stops and searches, um, how long did that last for? Uh, it started in 2000. And, I mean, I've, you'll is probably it, be able to it, relate to this. Is, is it still happening? Um, it's funny you say that, but we'll come to that in a second. Mm-hmm. Let, me, let me just give you the context mm-hmm. to it. So, so you, you'll understand this or be able to empathise, but as young Muslim men, yeah. you probably started, getting stop, started to be stopped and searched bro, you, when you were very young. Bro, we can't travel normally. Right. So even when I'm 17 and I yeah. start driving, which is when my encounters with the police start, I'm yeah. constantly being stopped by the police. What are you doing? It's late. You Where know. are you going? Yeah, basically. Plus, I'm driving an older car as well, mm. which drives the curiosity. Is the car got insurance? Is it MOT'd or whatever? Mm. So I'm very used to the idea of being stopped. Sadly, I'm very used to the idea of being stopped by the police. Mm-hmm. But from 2008 onwards, it becomes a lot more um, driven by something more. And at that moment in time, I can't work out what it is. Mm-hmm. It's the intelligence file that they've got that's then leading them to direct their questions, right? Um, so it, it leads to routine stops and searches at the roadside and detentions at the border. So I think I've been scheduled seven, four times out of those detained twice and had my devices seized on one occasion. Horrible experience. Or during the course of a legal case, because of course your viewers may not know, but actually I fought a legal case starting in 2008 and I Which won you in won. 2011. You right? did indeed. Uh, damages and apology for an unlawful stop and search under the Terrorism Act, um, which requires reasonable suspicion. But there is a chapter dedicated to that one particular stop in the book. Um, so yeah, the surveillance takes on multiple forms, but not only that, but at the same time as investigating uh, my own case and then becoming 
more engaged in research on counterterrorism for my PhD, I'm starting to secure information and data from agencies like um, the Crown Prosecution Service, the Ministry of Justice. I write to MI5, they say they don't hold anything that they can give to me. West Midlands Counterterrorism Unit. And, and during the course of collecting all this evidence and information, it starts to quickly emerge um, a very colourful picture that the state has painted about me in all of their internal and secretive documents. Tell us a bit about that picture. Uh, stuff about um, how I exercise my rights at the roadside, how I know about the law, how the way I dress, um, the way I was challenging police officers when asking them for a reason as to why I was stopped, citing the law. Uh, but also things like I said something to a member of the local community and that's then logged on that intelligence system. Wow! Which then leads to the question: How did that? How did they get that information? Right. We know. We know. We know. I know who the source is. Okay. I haven't named the source in the book. Okay. Um, because my family still live in that community, and Rata. I still have a connection to that community. So Rata. I can't. I, yeah. Right. So 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 I, I know who the source is. Um, and, I, and this and, and in the chapter I explain how this source actually two of them were actually in receipt of prevent funding. So the interactions that are taking place between the police service and, and these individuals running this organisation are part and parcel of the prevent strategy. Thus we find, or we can certainly deduce, how prevent relationships are being used in order to gather surveillance data that is then being logged onto the system. But your initial arrest uh, and detention was unrelated to prevent, because that was CTU entirely, right? But then Prevent got involved when in terms of intelligence gathering about you. Correct. Yeah, yeah. So uh, my um, my case was not Prevent. Uh, prevent is about the pre-criminal space yes. mm -hmm. before an individual has committed a crime. So according to this logic now, because Hisham and I are in possession of this document, which is unlawful to possess regardless of... There's nothing intent. to prevent now. Right, 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 right. You've committed a crime yeah, because you're, you're in possession of this document. <laughs> <clears throat> so we're going to arrest you. But... What happens is, after the arrest at Nottingham, uh, Hisham and my case, there is no other arrest that is executed on a university campus which involves the possession of documentation, primary research literature. And the reason for that is something to do with the fact that, one, the prevent strategy comes into um, implementation, is implemented in 2009, a year after our arrest, and secondly, you have universities who take on the role of policing what ac materials are being accessed by staff and students, um, <laughs> uh, staff and students uh, on their campus. So the job and the task of policing is now something that is being done internally. Mm. Now, the advantage of that is is that the police don't need to rock up onto campus and execute a warrant and an arrest. They can just get the university to do that. Because what an arrest does, it generates criticism, it generates media interest, and so on and so forth. So as a result of that, um, you have a, quite a sinister and insidious um, outcome, and that is that nobody even recognises that you've got this highly coercive campaign of control and political influence taking place because it's all happening without the media fanfare that an arrest generally creates, mm -hmm. right? So... So, yeah, my case wasn't uh, pursue. Um, uh, it wasn't prevent. It was what's known in policy terms as pursue. pursue. Um, but actually, um, 
since then there hasn't been another one like that because they can use prevent to deal with it and was that under the cts act uh, so or is it, are we talking pre-CTS Act? Right, we're talking... Uh, okay, so yeah, we're talking pre-Counterterrorism uh, and Security, Security Act 2015. Uh, and, and the reason why the Counterterrorism and Security Act 15 mm. is introduced is because there is dissent amongst the university sector when it comes to prevent. There wasn't just a uniform acceptance. In 2009, when the strategy is rolled out across the higher education sector, some vice-chancellors are opposed to the policy. Students' unions are opposed to the policy. And I spoke to many of these people as part of my field work. So actually, the picture wasn't that clear. So some of them were not doing prevent. They were saying, yeah, yeah, fine, we'll do prevent. But they weren't doing it. And the, the, the government recognised, understood, that actually there is no, there's no consent here and we haven't got any teeth to mm. make them do prevent. Yep. So they then said, right, we're now making it a legal duty. By law of the land, CTS 2015, you have to, to do, do prevent. But they give you a statutory footing, yeah? Right, so they made it law. Yeah. And that within itself, it, right, if you don't follow the law, what happens? You've committed a crime. Right. It's a, a threat of uh, prosecution. It's coercion again, bro. Right, right. You're right, not, you, right. You've, you've now turned lecturers and teachers into state spies, essentially, and made it a mandatory duty on them to basically surveil and report back. Yes. There's uh, a pressure on them. Yeah, and it's a coercive pressure. And it's part of their job now. Yes, yeah, uh, part of my job now as well. So, um, there's, there's, they've got a freaking camera behind us, and they're trying to listen to our convos. Don't, don't mess with the studio, yeah. <laughs> so, so we, 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 I can't remember the point. No, we were talking about the pressure, the pressure on lecturers oh, and yeah, university it, yeah. staff. It's about creating a coercive environment that mm. forces mm. universities, teachers, lecturers, um, opticians, doctors, nurses to become the eyes and ears of the state mm -hmm. because it's not about catching criminals. Mm -hmm. It's about ideological influence and counter-ideology work. Who do you not like the sound of? Who do you not like the look of that you think we should maybe be aware of, mm. right? So I think there's something at play there that's quite sinister and quite dangerous. I mean, all of this is quite quite fascinating when you explain it in, in, in a chronological way although brief um, I imagine the book has so much more like you said excruciating detail around many of these events in terms of sequence um, the university kind of the, the experience you had after being released without charge is, is is almost as fascinating and outrageous as the event that led to it itself and that I imagine that went on for such a long time what what is it like now looking back at th that period, those years, um, and how has it shaped you? Yeah, uh, that's an excellent question. Um, I mean, uh, being taken into custody and being suspected in the way that I was and then subjected to surveillance and ongoing state violence, um, it taught me that the world is not split between good and bad and black and white. There is lots and lots and lots of grey. Mm. Um, it led to a rewiring on a, on a very psychiatric level, a rewiring of, of my brain. And the reason was simple. You know, you, you grow and you're socialised into the belief that the police are there to protect you. <laughs> and all your life you spend thinking that. Now, even though you're being stopped and searched as a 17-year-old, I did anyway, was, right, look, listen, I, I understand why you're doing this because you're racist. I'm not going to say that. But I get it, right? I'm I'm clean. So you kind of perform the good Muslim. Mm -hmm. You know, I understand officer, etc., etc. Deep down you know, 
but you still comply with the belief of that course. this is a a a a they have their reasons right they have their reasons you you justify it to yourself yeah, yeah. right but after 2008 and the arrest the the level of suspicion the level of um um intrusion into life and my world makes me understand that actually this is a lot more sinister but also i'm told by the officers as i explain in the book that i'm going to prison which has a deeply deeply damaging effect on on the fact that i always believe that if you were innocent you, you don't know go to prison, prison right mm-hmm. i mean i knew about cases i knew about guantanamo i knew about people who had been rendered i'd read mozam's book by this stage i knew about the guilford four and the maguire but most innocent people don't go to prison right yeah. but you're right yeah most, most innocent, innocent people will don't not go, go to, to prison. prison and then i was in prison thinking oh my god i'm now going to prison mm. for something i've not done so it makes you question everything that mm. you know and believe to be true and what's kind of empowering about that is that in that deep dark moment of complete powerlessness emerged this 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 freedom this liberty this this realization that you know what this is how the world is and now i understand it and had i not been given this this treatment i would never have understood it so even in that moment alhamdulillah you find that that sense of empowerment a profound lesson yeah it's uh, yeah yeah and i and i genuinely believe it was um it was from it was from allah like i think these Absolutely. these difficulties and these challenges are are given to us in order to make us better people uh, to make us stronger people but there was also an element of what what some would call radicalization that mm. took place in that prison cell because the longer they kept me the more obtuse and silly the questions became were you angry the more angrier i became yeah so 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 i was going to say this so as the days passed first day second third fourth fifth sixth were you getting vexed and just angry there was there was a combination of did you have emotions. an element of hate in kafar because because at the end no, of no 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 that was never something that occurred to me why why i hate in the state what i despised was their incompetence okay they they were so incompetent Yeah. Like I I'm not giving any spoilers because I talk about this in the book, right? Um that they, they were incompetent, like stupid. Like like, like Yeah, they understood nothing about academia. They knew nothing about what what it meant to be a researcher, what postgraduate. Didn't get it. Yeah, they they because, had their agenda. <clears throat> they were chasing what they wanted to chase and that became obvious. Yeah, because they don't generally arrest PhD scholars or no. academics, right? Yeah, of course and, not. And, and they're not used to I, sure. you know they're not used to dealing with that demographic so the levels of incompetence and and just stupidity mm. were were quite incredible and profound and i remember being conflicted between feelings of sheer terror that now i'm now at the mercy of these people and these institutions mm-hmm. who just don't get it uh, coupled with sheer disbelief that how can you be so incompetent um, how can you have this power and, and be, be so given this power and be so incompetent. So there were a mix of feelings, but uh, yeah, there were there were moments of complete sheer anger at the entire way that the system constructs you as a as a threat and then labels and marks you for 99 years as someone who's involved in offenses against the state regardless the, of being released without charge. There's a couple of chapters in the book uh where you talk about mental health, trauma, trauma triggers. Um and bro, wallahi, I'll be honest with you. You know what you went through. Um uh, make it easy for you for the room for the rain of your life my brother because that would have that would have scarred the most strongest of men. 
right? Let alone an academic who is merely just downloading a free and legal document for his studies. So no doubt that would have affected you in adverse ways. Yeah, and just on that point, I'm sorry, make sure you don't forget the next point you want to make. But I want to make a point here that what I'm describing in this book and what mm. I'm talking about today mm. mm-hmm. is not unique. Mm. This is not an exception to the rule. It is the rule. Right, that every time an act of state violence is executed against a racialized person like us guys, the effect of that act of violence is profound and it follows and it lingers with you for years. And you may not understand what is happening to you in the same way I didn't when I first started experiencing my my mental health problems, my breakdowns, the hypervigilance, the paranoia, the PTSD and all these other things. But I knew there was something not quite right. I just didn't have the tools to understand it. So what I'm describing in this book and what I'm describing as my experience of being arrested wrongly and then all the rest of it, the only thing that makes this book and my story exceptional is that I'm telling it. Mm-hmm. Because alhamdulillah, I have the blessings of friends, family and the the, the blessings of God to, to have the ability to, to share this story. But what what I'm actually sharing is not profound or exceptional. It's the rules. But wouldn't your story be unique in the sense that, in the context in which it happened, you were a, you you were a, a postgrad researcher and you got lifted on campus, bro. Yeah, but I'm also a, a young Muslim male. At true, the time. true. 100%. I, think, I think what Rizwan's trying to say is that what's unique is that it, are, are the details of what happened sure. to Rizwan in terms of the story, his experience, and the fact that you're telling it but, but, in but, the way that you're. But, with Rizwan saying that it is the rule is that, that this is the method so if you experience something like this that is the method you're likely to experience in yeah, terms yeah of the effect of it the outcome okay. the, 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 the root yeah, yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. So, so tell us a bit about the the trauma triggers the paranoia the PTSD how were you managing it what what things would trigger it um, at the mo- at the time uh, when the dust settled on the legal case and I won and then you know things calmed down around 2011-12 I just, I just felt like constantly there was this shadow, the shadow of suspicion. Not, not entire closure. Oh God, no, no, far from it. And you know, I kind of busied myself with my PhD. I've got to write it. I've got to submit. I've got to become an academic. Yeah, mm. I've been, you know, I've faced some hurdles, but yeah. we've still got to get back to it. And the legal case allowed me to show the world that I was innocent. Right. Constantly. So now I'm going to get back to work. When I get back to work, I'm, I'm, I'm engaging with counterterrorism policy, policy makers, police officers. And at the same time, I'm also able to now understand my own experience and what I went through and why I went through it. Now, that's starting to have quite a damaging effect on my mental health. But dis- but I never talk about it to anyone. I never share it with anyone. I don't, never go public with it. I don't even get help for it. And the reason I, I do that or, or don't get help is, or mention it is because I know the stories of people who have gone through a lot worse. So I'm thinking to myself at that stage in my mid-late 20s, what right do I have to complain when people have been incarcerated in places like Guantanamo Bay and CIA black sites and tortured and, and raped and molested by, by, people, by these soldiers? What right do I have? I was in Britain. I wasn't physically tortured. I wasn't, uh, I was, I wasn't charged or convicted. I wasn't sent to prison. Um, I've uh, campaigned, I've won a legal case. What right do I have to complain about this? I, I should just shut up and keep moving, right? Mm-hmm. So I, that's the simple philosophy, that I, I downplayed my own experiences and the harm that emerges. Was that the correct philosophy at the Absolutely time? Absolutely not. 
Absolutely not. And, and this is the the point that I make in the book that just because an act of violence is is based on the rule of law, or you're given access to a lawyer, does not decrease the harm that emerges because of that act of violence, mm-hmm. right? Whether you're having an act of violence execute, executed against you in Guantanamo Bay or in Nottingham or in London, it's still an act of violence, That's and right. it all has its own significance it has its own meaning mm-hmm. right and you can't compare this isn't a you know um a victimization olympics yeah. right each case has to be measured according to its own worth and absolutely. challenged and, cha- and challenged in its own right yeah absolutely so so it was a completely the wrong philosophy and it was only when did you it was really? a noble philosophy I mean, I try and do I, no no, no I, uh, I, I understand and we actually had this conversation we where, had, we had where, that where we, we spoke without going away from the subject we spoke about comparing you know levels of challenges in your life and difficulties and oppression and and, and which one is and which one should be given more attention because of the, the, the gravity of the difficulty and the suffering um, but how actually the conclusion we came to was also that you know oppression is oppression yes a wrongdoing is a wrongdoing and it must be challenged and if Allah has given us a blessing and the ability to ha- to voice yes and to have support around us to pursue something to get to the truth and the answer and and absolving ourselves or whatever it is, then that should also, absolutely be done. And without, I mean, yeah, but at that time, it also becomes: uh, Am I being? Is this ego? Am I just, you know, trying to Soldier stay race. relevant? Mm. Or you know, even when I wrote the book, I didn't want to write the book. Mm. There's a part of me. This started off as a very, very academic book, mm. but the more I wrote in an academic tone, the more I despised the book. And it was like, this isn't what I want to say. So the writing experience was not only triggering, it became a lot more triggering when I actually started writing it all down, testimony, basically. Mm. But it, the, the, I realised that I can't write an academic book on this subject, and why should I, mm-hmm. right? If I'm talking about counterterrorism, I should be talking about my own case. So actually, there was a part of me that actually, to, to empower the community, to empower young Muslims... I have to share this story that's very personal that they can relate to in in numerous ways. I think mm-hmm. readers will be able to read themselves into the book in different ways. Um, but I need mm-hmm. to share the story. And writing the story was extremely triggering. And I didn't realise. And then, and, uh, you know, there was, another, there was another collapse in 2018 during the course of writing this book, which, which was triggered purely by the fact of writing the book uh, which took me back to that same prison cell and everything else that subsequently happened. But at this time now I'm trained mm. because I've already had one mental health breakdown. I'm now trained to look out for the triggers. But now I'm thinking, all right, I'm aware of the triggers. They're all being pushed, but this is an occupational hazard, mm. right? This is going to happen. It's inevitable. I've just got to keep writing. And you keep telling yourself this, that I've got it, I've got it. It's all under control. It's all un- until bank. It's no longer under control. And you've lost the ability to use your rational faculties in the same way that you would if you were in control of your mental health. And, you know, that's when it becomes all dark and sinister and and, and so on and so forth. But, you know, um, I I think the mental health dimension is something that's greatly overlooked. Mm -hmm. That all acts of state violence affect all of us differently. And we have a responsibility to talk about them in a safe environment, in a, in a safe way. Now, I know that this is a very public conversation that we have in the book. It's public, it's there for everyone mm. to read. Mm-hmm. 
but the 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 intention behind it is to say look even i alhamdulillah as a as a grown man who has a very privileged job still suffer from this issue what happens if you don't have the tools or the social network or capital connections Absolutely. to get help you close off you you know you 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 continue to suffer right become very suffer. unwell you become very unwell mm-hmm. and and that's dangerous you know whether it's suicide whether it's um doing things that harm others harm yourself these things need to be addressed and spoken about and they can only be expressed and spoken about as if they're they're spoken about um whether on an individual basis therapy or whether in a very public way to inshallah i hope mm. to inspire others to inshallah. say it's okay to go through what you're going through it's a normal consequence of living in a violent system of power which is essentially what we live in um and you know let's see let's see what the the readers uh, think of it and how they react to it uh, we'll see i think it's important to add that as an extension to what you said there is one without any real meaningful support it, there could be some serious harmful consequences for brothers and sisters who have similar experiences like this with the state with police um in your journey since you have been on this journey and experienced these these things what kind of conversations have you had with others men women brothers sisters um family peers family peers who have experienced something in a in a similar way in a in a in a, in a similar area in terms of Yeah so so I want to make two points in response to that one is that nobody i know has directly lived and experienced this sort of harm mm-hmm. or spoken to me about it i think the only kind of solace i got is i read a book by a wonderful book by Ju- judith herman mm-hmm. um called Tra- trauma and recovery which really helped me make sense of it but that came a lot later before that when i fell on well my family compelled me to go and seek help from the nhs i didn't want to and the reason i didn't want to is because i didn't trust them i thought the doctors were spies i thought they were passing information to the uh, security services mm-hmm. uh, i i trusted no one not even my own family at that time because it felt like that someone was either trying to kill me or they were trying to set me up and imprison me again for terrorism so at that moment in time i couldn't actually draw on the help of even my close friends or family or even the NHS because you had trust issues right when things calm down a little bit and things start to improve and I start to engage with the process with the NHS I still couldn't trust the NHS I felt like the person who was my caseworker was communicating information to the services I felt like I couldn't actually express what I wanted to say because she didn't understand as a young white uh, woman and that's not her fault um but that's the the demographic mm-hmm. that we're dealing with right that the 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 people that make up the nhs who are providing mental health provision are not versed in these topics around state violence about the racism of the system the effects that this has and nor do they have the social experiences that we have right, so they can't right, relate right, or right. understand in a meaningful way right 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 so so as a result i was having having to actually be academic and also patient so you're the and patient that's hard work you're, you're, it's, it's exhausting so you're being it's the patient you're I, trying I, to you're trying to access support and treatment but at the same time educating uh, educate in school and uh, you're having to explain things in a way that i imagine is triggering 
Yes. Yeah. So like when I'm when I when I'm telling my casework and they were examples of this, and I'm like, look, I feel like I'm under surveillance, and she's like, why why would you be under surveillance? And I'm thinking in my head, but you know that I've been arrested. I've told you that this is an important part of my mindset at the moment, mm-hmm. and it's it's playing a central part. Why? And she, you know, bless her, she was really nice. I, I don't want to say anything bad about her, but. She just didn't have the ability to. But Charlie just didn't get in it. She she can't. And it's not her. Fault. It's not her yeah. fault. We right? get that because she's not there yet. She's not there yet. <laughs> structurally, the system it operates in a way to erase the experiences of people of color and Muslim communities because the demographic in the NHS just it's structural. Ra- this is how structural racism works. Mm. Why would you be under surveillance? Mm. Why would they be watching? It's a fair question, mm-hmm. right? And normal people, and I remember turning. It's around a fair to question when it never happens to you, your people. Right, and this is the point, right? I <laughs> yeah, knew. It's bizarre to you, yeah. I yeah. knew that it was there. I've got evidence. I've got it there in black and white, mm. right? There's evidence that I was under surveillance, and this is how mm. it was expressing itself. So when someone turns around, that becomes almost like denying the lived experience of a patient, and that becomes exhausting. And it's almost like this is actually not helping. Them. Yeah, this, this becomes counter. It becomes harmful. Mm-hmm. Right, so so I, I tried my best to engage with it, but there were a number of different issues that arose during that process of engagement with mental health provision or services, and that's why I spoke about in the book specifically how we deal with this dimension, and we need something within our own community that has expertise and understanding of what it means to encounter uh, racist policing, to to understand how. Uh, expertise does not exist in the existing system and that we need provision we need funding we need uh, the community to take a lead role who's going to fund hiring. it I don't know man who's going to fund know. it you know? I don't know I don't know but it can't I, be government funding no, 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 I, I, I mean I've addressed this in the book the, the, the details but there's a okay. general idea that this would be a community initiative Inshallah. in which Muslim psychiatrists and psychologists and people like myself survivors and others would be able to provide a space to people to come and express what it is that they feel like a community hub almost mm. and, and you know the whole point of it is to allow them to share what it is that they're feeling in a safe environment and that part of judith herman's book trauma recovery is the first step to recovery from trauma political trauma sexual abuse or any other kind of abuse is safety you've got to find a space of safety and if you're not feeling safe you're not going to be able to actually get the help that you need and build uh, a life for yourself. So, you know, in the book, there's a number of different chapters where I've spoken specifically about how we can confront the mental health problems, but also politically how we can actually um, navigate this terrain and this uh, particular uh, policy area in terms of resistance, Mm. right? Because the book isn't just about oh my god look what happened here this is outrageous and look at all the power that the state has but actually the book documents that no matter how power may be and how it may be exercised or how you know godlike it might try to construct itself actually it can be resisted you know goliath was defeated defeated by david and it's that same concept that we are the little people we are the powerless community but it does not matter there are there are vulnerabilities and there are weaknesses and we need to make sure that we understand how to resist and what to resist not every issue needs to be resisted mm-hmm. but some issues absolutely have to be resisted right so there there is a the last part of the book i spend talking about 
resistance and how we can we can basically engage in resistance in a way um, which is suitable for this country and the institutions that exist. Alhamdulillah, bro. I think that's a very empowering message to conclude the podcast on. With regards to people finding an order in the book, where is it? Amazon? Where is it? Where, where are we finding it? It's available it? in all good bookshops. Book all good. We are all good bookshops. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everyone asks me this: Where can I buy the book from? It's like it's a book. You get it from wherever you get your books. Brothers um, and sisters, we highly recommend uh, for you all to spend some money. And buy Dr. Rizwan Sabi's The Suspect book If you liked today's podcast And the crazy story that he managed to very briefly tell us uh, In this hour and a bit podcast And you want to hear more about the events building up to it The day itself The days that followed uh, in his incarceration Yeah, you just need to that Yeah, basically you can't you, you, you need to be spending some peas and buying this book inshallah and it's not that many peas just to just to kind of yeah, how I mean, much the book is how much is a piece uh, it, it's at the moment it's on for 13 pounds and can't and, go wrong and, and, and I'm hoping it will go cheaper and more people inshallah, will be inshallah. able to read with it uh, Riz I just want to say bro um, you're a dear friend of mine bro I know, I, know, I know we don't get to see each other much um, and whenever we do it's only love and and I, I, th- I think you're a warrior bro and I, I think you're fighting a battle in a completely different front which benefits the space of activists and journalists, Muslim journalists and activists. And I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes it easy for you, my brother, and, and accepts your work, bro. I mean, thank you, brother. Is this your actual side profile? This is not my side profile. No. Okay. <laughs> I've seen the, that nose definitely is a resistance. <laughs> Are we not supposed to do this part once the camera turns no, off? No, no, no. <laughs> when you start like no, no, keep taking it. the mix. No, no, we, no, we, no, we, keep, we keep those bits in. Look, uh, look, I'm, I'm just happy that we concluded the podcast an empowering message. So brothers and sisters, if, you're, if you've experienced um, state surveillance, state violence, state oppression, any of those kind of things that we've discussed, uh, please do seek help. Speak to people about it. Um, there are family members and people within the community who would be willing to help and listen. Please do not uh, isolate yourself and you know and make yourself unwell. Um, speak to people. Speak to people who you trust. Inshallah. Uh, and of course, always remember that Allah is on your side, and that if there is no justice in this world, verily there will be justice in the hereafter. But we seek the justice in this world, and we know that Inshallah will be served in the hereafter. If you like this episode. And all the episodes before it and to come, please subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel. You can find this podcast on all the major audio platforms. Until next time, Salaam Alaikum. Asalaamu Alaikum, everyone. Blood Brothers Podcast, Five Pillars Production.